Genesis chapter 2. We've gathered to worship the Lord. We'll worship Him in spirit and truth. We must, if we are to worship Him, worship Him in spirit and truth. And so now we turn to His Word, the truth, and listen to Him, endeavor to learn from Him and to grow in Him for Him, for His glory. Genesis 2, we'll read verses 15 through 25 this morning and do our best with the unspoiled, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Father, we praise you for your word. We, we praise you and, and worship you because you are the holy, righteous, good God who provides. Lord, you are perfect in purity, in holiness, in love. Father, we praise you. We thank you. We pray that you would ask that we ask now, Lord, we pray uh, that you would change us, that we would be resting in your goodness, your wisdom, your power, your love. God, work through any distractions among us or within us, that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. What happened here? <laughs> That's a question that you may ask sometimes, maybe many times, when you walk into your children's room. <laughs> And only that morning it had been organized, it was clean, and everything was put away, and suddenly it's a disaster area. And you watch as your children look up, and you get, they see this look on their face of, oh, <laughs> we just didn't, re we were playing, we didn't realize, right? Look around, and what happened? This, this is an amazing transformation, and it wasn't a good transformation. That's, that's sort of what we're looking at here in Genesis together, as we've looked at Genesis chapter 1, we've, we've seen God's goodness in creation and I'm going to have to probably do something about this. We'll see if that helps at all. It's, uh, it's my fault up here on this, uh, this part, so if it happens, I'll just pick up the microphone here. So I apologize. I hope it doesn't become too distracting. But uh, in Genesis 1, God's goodness is on full display as He creates everything, and it's got order and it's in its place. In Genesis chapter 2, Moses is expounding even more on all of the goodness of God and how He has prepared everything for the moment of creation, the creation of man and woman and bringing them together and how he loves them and provides for them. 
This morning, we're seeing the final part of the description of God's spotless and pure creation that's full of life. It's full of blessing. It's full of goodness and light and life. And we've been looking at it from the perspective of what God has done for man. And man has been used in a broad sense. Man has has meant man and woman. It's meant the entire human race. It's just that there are only two of them at this point, one man and one woman. So last week, we saw that God prepared the land for man at verses 4 through 6. We saw that God created man and provided food for man, mankind, verses 7 through 9. And then number 3, we saw God's work overflowed in blessings for man, verses 10 through 14. So this week, we've got two more to look at, two more ways that God has provided. And so we begin with number 4 in our notes, that God provided work and boundaries for man. God provided work and boundaries for man. Verses 15 through 17. Now, again, as we studied chapter 1, we've seen God as the distinction maker. God has been the boundary giver, the standard maker. Even as he's been the good provider and sustainer in, in all of his power, in all of God's wisdom, his boundaries that he's given have been for good. They've been for a benefit and a blessing and for all of his glory. So in verse 15, God puts the man in the garden of pleasure, the garden of Eden. Remember, that's, that's what we understand Eden to be. It's a, a paradise of, of pleasure in Eden. So the word put is a word that means God rested Adam there. He, he picked him up. He made him. He picked him up. He put him, placed him there with the idea of rest and peace. And so with that information, we might start to get an idea in our own minds of paradise. Everything is great around us. There's nothing wrong, nothing that would cause death. He has everything he he needs. He is there to be resting and in peace. We might think in our own minds of man's idea of just kicking back and relaxing in paradise. We might get that idea because that's man's idea of paradise. But that's not God's idea of paradise. Paradise and pleasure do not exclude meaningful work. They include it. And so God picks up man, places him there in his ideal, his standard for man to work. In verse 15, he put him there to work it and to keep it. And so this work, this word work in the garden, it's the word avad. It means to serve, to serve, to work hard. And it's a a pretty broad, general word. It means to serve and to work. It's all-encompassing. It means it's the same thing whether we're serving God, whether we're serving others. We are meant to work. And then he says he's, he's there to keep the garden, to shamar, to keep it, attend it. Take great care of this garden. Look after it, Adam. You're in charge of this, right? You, you've been given dominion over creation, and it starts right here. This is where you are to work. So even the way God designed the human body, he meant it for work. Uh, scientists say if you sit for prolonged periods of time, you take stress off both of your skeleton and your muscles, and you weaken your entire muscular and skeletal system if you sit too much for too often. Not working, being sedentary, especially after eating, causes sugars from your food not to be used by your muscles, so it stays in your blood. And over time, that can lead to higher blood glucose levels, which is a precursor to type 2 diabetes. Your cardiovascular system suffers, your metabolism suffers, your fat level goes up, your good cholesterol goes down, your bad cholesterol goes up. All of the terrible things that happen to our bodies, it's made worse when we're sedentary, when we're not working. 
It's bad for the body. Studies show that the more time you spend sitting, the more likely you are to die of any cause whatsoever. And so God designed our bodies. He made us to work. He, he created us to be workers, servers. It's not only physical and organic, it's also connected a lot of times to how you feel, isn't it? I mean, you feel better when you're working. The less you work, the less you do, the less you feel well. And opposite that, there is nothing as satisfying as completing the work that God has given you to do. God's given us meaningful work. And in fact, when you find a job that you love and that's satisfying and it's glorifying to God, it doesn't even feel like you're working. I hope and I pray that that will be true of you, that you'll be able to find young people, look for that work that is satisfying, that's glorifying to the Lord. And people that have been working in something else, well, we'll keep praying for you. (laughs) That you'll find joy in what God has given you to do. What would Adam and Eve need to be doing? I mean, this garden, there's, it's great, right? There's no thorns. There's no weeds. There's nothing poisonous. What are they needing to work so hard on? Well, plants, of course, still need pruning. They need harvesting. They'll, they'll need moving. You know, you need walkways and different things. The plants needed to be taken care of. And so the Garden of Pleasure, the Garden of Eden, um, within that garden, there is work. There is meaningful, um, responsible, challenging, worthwhile work for Adam and Eve to do. There's no laziness or sloth. And so God provided work. Now, God also provided boundaries for man, but the boundaries from God that came from him, they came with so much blessing, so much freedom. Look at verse 16. The Lord God, again, we just take a minute just to pause. The Lord God, that almighty, personal, living, amazing God who's been working the whole time. This amazing Lord God, the all-powerful one who is knowable and knows us. This Lord God commanded the man. That's the first time we see in the scriptures that God makes a command. He gives a command. Uh, That means who's in control. God is, right? Who's supposed to be listening to the one who's in control? Mankind. That's right. So look at the command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Well, that's not a very tough command, is it? (laughs) Eat, Adam. Look at all of the things that are here. Look at all of the beautiful and enjoyable and tasty and healthful food I have given you in this garden. Do you remember verse 9, beautiful and tasty? I mean, all of the things that God gave. He gave you the receptors in your eyes to see the colors and the textures and the patterns, the shapes. He, he gave you the taste buds to be able to taste all this amazing food. God says, eat. You have it all to enjoy. Verse 17 is the boundary, the line. But from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. It's the strongest form of prohibition in the Hebrew language. Do not. Absolutely do not. You get all of this all of the time, but at no time do you get this one tree. You know, it made me think of the toddler in the front yard. You've got your toddler in the front yard. The toddler's got every toy imaginable, right? They've got green grass, and, and your, little, your little girl is out there playing with her toy house, and she's enjoying everything, and you've given her some crackers and some cookies and some juice, and she's just there until the car passes by, and she looks over and notices the road, and she says, what is that, <laughs> right? I want to go see the road. And you say, no, 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 stay over here. Everything, is, you need, everything you need, everything you want is here, right here in the front yard, but but there's the road, right? And you say, no, just, just be content with all of this. And as soon as the toddler discovers the road, there's nowhere else that she wants to go. 
That's like us. That's like Adam and Eve here. You get all of this. Stay away from the one thing. And it's as clear. The line was as clear as the line between the green grass and the sidewalk and the road. Stay away, Adam, from the tree. Have freedom, have goodness, have pleasure, have satisfying work. This is all that is good. The line is clear here. And and there's one thing that you don't have access to. How gracious God is, even in his commandment to man. Just a super abundance of blessing against one negative command. You know, God wasn't out there to try to trip up Adam and Eve. He wasn't there to make them stumble. He didn't give them 15 different ways and not tell them three of them, right? There's one way. It's right here. It's clear. The Lord God is not all about anger and do this and don't do that. He's not just this, this big mean God with all a bunch of threats and capricious outbursts. He's not out to get people. That's not what he meant. That's not what he did in the garden. He's good. He's wise. And for his glory and Adam's good, he tells him the truth. Don't eat this one from this one tree because if you do, you will die. God says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Hebrew is dying, you shall die. It's a certainty. It's an absolute certainty. But did Adam comprehend that? Do you think Adam really knew what that was? I mean, to this point, there was no such thing as death. But this was an absolute death penalty. There's there's no precedent, but God spoke clearly. And Adam had to have understood some kind of a sense of finality and disaster that would come if he disobeyed that command. Now, next week, we'll talk about what it did mean, but for now, the focus is, Adam, trust me. The Lord says to Adam, just trust, listen and obey and trust. Of every garden, you can surely eat. You are guaranteed by God. This is given for you. It's good for food. It's, it's good to look at. It's good to eat. Just trust God. It's going to benefit you. It's going to prevent harm and death for you. God is merciful. He's gracious. And it's so simple. And that's what we need to see about God. His commands, God's commands are for our good and for his glory. His commands are not arbitrary. God doesn't just come up with a list of things to tell you to do and tell you not to do because he just feels like telling you what to do. They are limiting. His commands limit us from certain things, but it's not arbitrary. It's for our good to keep us from harm and disaster and death. Now, is it only just keeping us physically healthy? There are ways that that's true. But in all open truth, they keep us from sinning against this holy God from whom we will receive eternal punishment if we cross those lines. If we go outside of his design, his barriers, his boundaries that he's given us, this is good for us and it's for God's glory. The way that we will cross those boundaries and and receive the penalty is more than we can bear. So our good is God's glory. Recognize Adam and Eve here have absolute free will to obey or disobey. Adam's supposed to trust and love God, but he could choose not to, right? But it would start from within with a doubting of God, despite all of the evidence that they have all around them, despite all the evidence they have within them, they're going to have to start by doubting him, doubting his goodness, and then turning away from him. So the first and easiest way that that would be expressed is to disregard the one negative command that God gave. So it's important for us to note that this tree, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, is not the tree of good and evil. 
This tree is not the tree of good and evil. See, what is forbidden here is the knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's forbidden here is for man to make up his own decisions about what's good and what's evil. You and I, brother and sister, man, woman, young child, none of us were created with the ability to tell ourselves what's good and what's evil. We don't get to make that decision. This was God saying, this is the knowledge, from this tree will come the knowledge of good and evil. So we're created to be dependent on God to tell us what's good and what's evil. But mankind is going to say, well, I think I want that knowledge for myself. But for now, it's just God's perfect boundaries, his perfect boundaries of blessings and his commands of goodness. But that's how God provided work. That's how he provided boundaries for man. And that's why it's good. That's why we can love God and his commandments, right? That's why we can love when God says, don't do that or go do that. We can love him and trust him in that. So that's number four. We can trust the Lord and and we can love him and his commands because he's provided us good work, good boundaries. Number five, God provided a compliment for man. Now don't misspell it. This is compliment with an E, not an I. He said, what are you talking about? Well, compliment, C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T is saying something nice. And and God did say something nice about man. He said, you're made in my image. (laughs) That was nice of God to say and for God to do. But this is compliment with an E, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T. It's a word that means completion, bringing completion. Uh, uh, Bringing uh, completion to what is lacking. That's what this compliment means. Now, remember, again, these verses that we're studying happen on day six between verses 26 to 28 of chapter one, somewhere in that time. But God is, God is at the end of verse 31. He says he sees everything is very good, but here he says it's not good for man to be alone. So remember that this happens before he says that at the end, everything's very good. But this is where we understand that man has been universal up till this point. Every time that we've seen the word man, it's meant man, mankind. Well, not every time, but almost every time. It's meant mankind. Here, God begins to zero in on the man himself, Adam. Who is it that makes this announcement that it's not good for man to be alone? It's God says this, right? It's God who says this. It's not man. He doesn't even know it yet. Right? He's got everything he needs. He's got everything he's ever seen and ever known because he's only been alive that day. He was born that day, right? Everything's brand new. He's brand new. He's not tired of it yet. He doesn't know anything else. Everything's just brand new. He has no idea that he's not complete, that he needs something from God. So God calls out the condition, the incompleteness that's not good, but then in his wise goodness, in, in God's good wisdom, he says, not only is this the problem, God says, I've got the solution. Even before Adam knows there's an issue, God's got a plan in mind to solve the issue. One commentator says, quote, Adam's wife was in the mind of God long before she was ever in the arms of Adam, end quote. And so make no mistake, this is what God is doing. He's, he's creating a woman and creating this man and woman to come together in marriage. This is the first marriage. But see, God is always working ahead of us. 
He's always working before and ahead of us, going, going before us and ahead. And sometimes we get the idea, well, God's late or, or God's just never on time. He's, we call him the 1159 God, right? He's he just right up till the minute. And then, you no, know, God's always working. He's never late. He's never early. <laughs> he's right on time in his perfect sovereign time. He's working ahead of us. He's working behind us. He's working all of the time. So God is gracious to Adam. He, he knows Adam's needs before Adam even does, and he begins to fulfill them. But look how even more gracious God is. He teaches Adam about his need before he gives the solution. <laughs> he teaches Adam. He takes the time to show him. And, and many times, you know, when God's got something for us, maybe, maybe a gift, maybe the best gift he's ever given us, he's got to teach us why we need it. He's got to show us why it's such a great gift. Sometimes we're going to go through a really tough time before he gives us a really good gift of grace and of love. So that's what God does here with Adam. God brings the animals to Adam. He says, here, Adam, you're not, you're not complete. It's not good for you not to be complete. So all of the animals are going to come over here, and this is a teaching moment for, with lessons for Adam. But quickly, before we get to those lessons, we may be confronted, we may be challenged with this question of timing again, right? Just like last week when we saw that there were plants that God created after creating or with by, uh, at the same time he was creating man, we see here again, verse 19, God says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast and bird and then brought them. And the original reads, uh, some of your translations may say, the Lord God formed every beast and bird and brought them. And so this is a common challenge to the Word of God. See, you got a contradiction here already just in the first couple of chapters. How can you believe anything this book says? Now, as we saw last week, there is no contradiction here. And there are a couple of different ways that, we've, uh, that we can see that this is not a contradiction. The first is what you see here in the ESV standard. If you have uh, the ESV Bible, uh, that translation, you see the verb formed as had formed. That's called a pluperfect. It means it was, it was completed just before what's happening now. Uh, it was completed in the past, even as you're reading about the past. So, uh, this is important because Hebrew doesn't have tenses like we do, past, present, future. There's perfect and imperfect. Is it completed work or is it incomplete? And so, this is just simply, it's completed. And so, had formed is a, is a perfectly legitimate translation for this word. God had formed all of these things already. There's another answer that can go along with that. It doesn't have to, but just as we saw last week, God created different kinds of plants than he had created before for man to take care of. And that can be, that's a legitimate um, solution as well here for these animals that God makes. These are different words than he used before. God used, uh, God made these animals specific to the garden and brought them before man. And it's a feasible solution. It maintains timing. It prevents another problem. Can you imagine if God had brought every kind of animal that we know of today to Adam to name, how could he have done that in a, in a few hours? He probably couldn't have, right? So, so God brought to him all of the animals that he had made for the garden, said, said, Adam, you have dominion over creation, but your work, your dominion starts here, and it starts with these animals. It starts with what I've made here. And the text seems to support this solution because notice that the fish are left out. In this, uh, this section, the, the creeping things are left out. So the same words are not used to describe all of the animals that God made on day six prior to making man. 
and it won't do any good to try to guess which animals, <laughs> which birds those were, so we're not going to do that, but this, this helps us. So God brings them to man, and Adam has lessons to learn from naming these animals. What are they? Well, we're going to look at three lessons quickly, briefly this morning. Lesson one for Adam, these animals are part of your dominion. These animals are, are part of your dominion. As, as he names them, God delegates Adam to have dominion over them. You remember we looked at that. The one in authority names the one who's under authority. And so God says, these animals are under your authority. This wasn't just some fun thing to do for Adam. Like, well, you got nothing better to do. Let's just start naming animals. <laughs> no, there, there's a lesson. And what God is teaching Adam is this is part of your responsibility. You, you've got work to do. These animals are part of your work. They're part of your responsibility. Lesson two, these animals are part of a large dominion. This is a large dominion. Even though not every single animal on the planet was brought to Adam, there were apparently many animals that were brought to Adam. And as he named them all, he said, wow, this, he, must have, he must have thought this is a lot of animals. This is a large dominion. The word that is used here is that they were brought opposite to, or they were brought in front of him. So there's no missing them. They they come right up to Adam, and Adam names them. They're all included. So uh, this was livestock. This was beasts of the field. This was even birds. And what, what God is teaching Adam here is, you're going to need help. This is way too big for one person to do by himself. Lesson three, these animals are not comparable to you. These animals are not comparable to you. None of them are a match for you, Adam. As the animals came up to Adam right in front of them, each of them had a mate. There was a male and a female ostrich (laughs) or lion or whatever that God brought up to Adam. I'm not sure that he had a a use for lions yet (laughs) um, at this point, but whatever the animals were, they had a match, and Adam stands there all alone naming these animals. He says, You have a dominion. These are your responsibility. There are a lot of them. You're going to need help. And none of these animals are going to be the kind of help that you're going to need. So after going through all the animals, verse 20 says, For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. You need a helper, but you haven't found the helper yet. Now, let's look at this together because we know that God's solution for the helper is Eve, right? We've read ahead or we've read these before, these verses before. We know that God's answer is Eve. So, what is he talking about? What is a helper fit for him? What does it mean? The word helper is largely misunderstood when we hear it today. When we hear the word helper, we think of the kindergarten teacher, right? In the kindergarten class. Now, I need a big helper today, <laughs> right? Who wants to be my big helper? And, and all the kids raise their hands, and, and so she picks the little boy that squirms around all the time, right? She picks the little boy to bring him up here, and, and he holds the sign so that he won't distract the rest of the class. <laughs> Let's get our helper here to hold the sign, and then the teacher teaches, and, and the helper is, is holding the sign, not really doing a lot of useful work, just not distracting everybody else, right? That's kind of the helper idea that we get. A helper is not someone who's necessary. It's not something that's really needed. It's just a cute way of involving someone, right? That, that's what we think of for helper. helper. Helper on our minds is something you can do without if you have to. It's something that's, the helper is not very capable. They only do a little bit. It's actually a little bit more work to have a helper than just to do it myself. 
and see, I could do it better or faster without this helper. That, that's kind of the idea that we get when we hear this word, helper. And in every way, that's the opposite of what this word means. In every way, that's the opposite. Helper here is not demeaning or unnecessary or unessential. It, this, is, this is a word that's indispensable. This helper is crucial. The idea here is not one complete man and an extra add-on, a little bit of help. That's not this picture here. This is an incomplete, incapable on his own, needing a compliment, needing completion, half. (laughs) You're not complete. You need the other half. Helper here, rather than meaning lesser or inferior, refers to strength. You see, helper can mean someone who's even more capable than you are, who's more powerful than you. Helper uh, is someone who does what you cannot do. You need help because you can't do what you need to be doing, so the helper does what you're not able to do. It's such a powerful concept that God is called a helper. God is our help. How do you think the enslaved people of Israel, the weak nation of Israel, came out of the powerful nation of Egypt? Moses tells them in Exodus 18 by teaching them by naming his son Eliezer. Eliezer, which means God is my help. He named his own son that so he could teach people. That, that's how we got out of there. The God, my, for God, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. At the end of Deuteronomy, the, some of the last words, the very last words of Moses. Moses says, happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help. God is your help? Well, certainly that doesn't mean that he's an extra add-on to a complete nation. God is the one who does what you cannot do. Many other places, God is our help. And today, for believers, brothers and sisters, if you've repented of your sins, you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the helper, capital H, in the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Jesus said, the helper will come in my name, John 14. God is our help. This word help does not mean someone that we don't really need. It's a picture of completion and of strength. The teaching for Adam here is that you are not complete on your own. You need a helper who is fit for you. Now, fit means corresponding to or comparable to. It means equal to him, but intentionally different for him and from him. Equal in every way, they share, a, they share a, a nature together, right? Physically, socially, spiritually, they are equal, but they're different so that you are able to do your work and she is able to do work that you cannot do so that together the two of you can obey the Lord when you would be unable to on your own. As Adam saw all the animals that passed before him, none were equal, none were comparable to him. God taught him he needed to have one who was fit for him to do the work he needed to do. Woman was meant to fill what was lacking in the man. She was form-fitted to him. That means she was not created to be on her own either, was she? Adam was incomplete, and so God made Eve to complete him. And so you can think of it as the world's simplest puzzle. (laughs) There are only two pieces to this puzzle. But until you put them together, it's not a complete puzzle. So, Adam is a piece, Eve is a piece, together they become complete as one. And the p- completed picture of this puzzle 
is the image of God. Now, that's why we've called this point a compliment for man, a, a compliment, not just helper, because helper doesn't fully help us understand. Uh, sometimes we key in on the word alone. We think, well, God made a companion, a friend for man in woman. Now, those are all part of what it means for sure, and, and it's part of a woman's nature, Eve's nature, and women after her to be a companion, to seek companionship, especially from Adam. That's an important part, but none of that is primary for Eve, for why she was created. It, relationship is important. It, it, it's a very important part, but that's not primary, the friendship, the companionship, for three reasons. There are probably more, but I came up with three reasons that it's not. Because number one, friendship can be found among the animals, right? I mean, if all Adam needed was a friend, well, there were animals all around. She didn't, woman didn't need to be a helper fit for him. You, you know, we read all the stories. We, we know from experience. We, we've seen studies that, that show us how close the relationship can be between a human being and an animal, the rider of a horse and, and the horse, or the dog owner and, and the dog, or the cat. No, no, not the cat. But you, you had to see that coming, right? I mean, you know, you know by now. <laughs> okay, friendship alone or as primary as the role of a woman is too demeaning for what God made her to be. Friendship or, or companionship cannot be it. Second, friendship can be found within the same gender, right? If you want a friend... You can find a friend as a man with a man, as a woman with a woman. In fact, you remember David when he was mourning over his close friend, Jonathan. At the end of his life, at, at, after he found out that he had died in 2 Samuel 1, David said, very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. That's what David said about another man. And it was a friendship, a close, intimate friendship together. So friendship alone or as a primary role of a woman is too dismissive for how God made her. And number three, friendship can be too self-focused. A friendship or companionship is, is too man-focused, it's too self-centered. If all a woman was meant to be was a, was a companion or a friend, then, then a woman would only exist to... to to fulfill your felt or real need for community, for fellowship, for communion, for friendship. And so again, as, as important as companionship and friendship is, that is not all that she exists for. Friendship alone or as primary for the role is too dishonoring for what God made her to be. In fact, she does not exist for anything man-centered or self-focused. And see, that's how we can distort God's image within women, we can distort God's plan for marriage. Men and women, a lot of times, search for a person who will meet their needs, right? I need somebody, I, I want somebody that's going to meet my needs. I, I want to have adventure, so she needs to be adventurous. I need to have support, so he better have a lot of money. <laughs> I, I need, I need, I need, I need, and so I'm looking for someone who can meet my sexual needs, my intimacy needs, my traveling partner needs, resources, all of the things that we hear people talking about for what they look for in a spouse, or just how they view the opposite sex, right? And in no case is that legitimate before God for either the gift of a husband or for a wife, or just the existence of a man or a woman. It generally results in disappointment, it's always inappropriate, and it often ends in failure. Why? 
Because for one or both, there's a basic misunderstanding of what a woman is, what a man is, and what marriage is. The woman is not created primarily for the man's benefit in any way. She is a benefit, just as he is to her. But primarily, the focus for woman being created, she was created, she was joined together with man in marriage to facilitate the work of bearing God's image for God's glory in obedience to his commands. She was not made for Adam to get whatever he wanted. She was not made so, made so that she could get whatever she wanted out of Adam. <laughs> it's not a mistake that directly after giving this command, you can eat of everything in the garden, but from this one tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. God says, you're going to need help. <laughs> The two of them together were meant to bear God's image, obeying him, trusting him, loving him, working together. Now listen, we're talking about God's ideal here. What we're, we're talking mostly about Adam and Eve and the ideal that God created in this beautiful paradise garden of pleasure. But we can tell this is starting to happen within ourselves. When, when you look at your spouse, you look at your husband or you look at your wife, and all you see is someone to get something out of. What is he not giving me? What is she not giving me? And you know, this is, There's a problem in our marriage because I'm not getting what I want, what I need. When this person becomes a means to an end rather than a cooperative team member to bring glory to God, then you're looking at him or her incorrectly. You're looking to satisfy or gratify a desire of the flesh, a desire for yourself. When you use your spouse for something, that's when, that's when it's gone wrong. It's all gone wrong in your mind. What she exists for or what he exists for, regardless of what he or she is or isn't doing. That's for married people. For unmarried people, you can tell this is happening when you're searching for a spouse and you dismiss all of those who would just be exceptional at helping you to grow in, the, in, in God's glory, to obeying his commands, to, to listening to him and learning from him and growing from him, and you dismiss all of those people who would be just wonderful at that because, well, I don't think that person could meet my needs, my desires, fulfill all of my cravings and lusts. Now, it is right, it's proper for a man to desire his wife as a friend in intimacy, for a wife to desire her husband in those same ways and in, in many other ways. Those are good, that's healthy, that's part of God's plan, but that's not primary for the woman's creation, for the man's creation, or for marriage. Some people even taught that Adam and Eve, their first sin was sexual. They said, well, what, this is actually symbolic, this, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, they, they got intimate physically, and that's what got them kicked out. That was their sin. And that's a bunch of baloney, isn't it? How are they supposed to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth <laughs> if they're not supposed to have any kind of intimacy? And, and why would God have made it so pleasurable for the two of them if it was against his plan? No, that, that's hogwash. <laughs> Those desires are good. They're God-designed. They're God-implemented. They're, they're good and healthy and beneficial, but they're not primary for woman's existence, for man's existence, or for marriage. A wife and a husband are to be working together to bear God's image. That's how he made them. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, male and female, he created them and God blessed them 
and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the birds and everything that moves. God said that to them, right? (laughs) So they're helping one another. They're helping one another to obey God's commands for our own good and for God's glory. So this is a partnership tasking from God. Bear my image and have dominion. Why? Because it glorifies God. Because it brings glory to God. No animal can help you like this, Adam. No animal can help you, and and no man, Adam, can help you in this way. No man-to-man or woman-to-woman relationship will obey God to work together to bear his image the way that a man and a woman together will in marriage. Without Adam and Eve together, you cannot obey God's commands to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He made it biologically, physically impossible (laughs) to to be able to obey those commands. And and the, the part of his blessing and command is in the middle of everything else he said. You can't even begin to obey God's commands, Adam, with another man, or Eve with another woman in quantity or in quality, because you're missing the compliment, the helper, Adam, that God made for you in Eve. She's fit for you. So no matter how many people try to convince themselves or you know, that they're better off single or, or that they could do it better with, a, with another person of the same gender, that's not God's plan. It's not his plan. Because the compliment was for man and woman to be together. Instead of rejecting God's boundaries, his standard, his ideal... We listen to God for our good and for his glory. It's also not good physically, according to studies, for man to be alone. According to studies, those who are married apparently have a 46% lower death rate. A study in Japan showed that men who had never been married were three times more likely to die from cardiovascular causes. As we saw before, God's God's plans, his commands, are for our good, for our very best, and for his glory. So the battle of the sexes, men versus women, who's better, who's better? Both sides are wrong when they're arguing about that, aren't they? They're not better, they're different. They're the same, they're equal, but different. Now, singleness does not mean that you cannot bear God's image. We want to make that clear. We've been talking a lot about marriage because that's the passage here. But God has a plan for you, if you are single, how you will best live out that responsibility. Whether you're single now and and will be married later or whether you're going to remain single, what we are to do is to be patient, to trust God and his plan and his timing. Again, he's not working late. He's working ahead of us. He's working behind us. We trust God and his plan and his timing. God is addressing Adam and Eve here. He is addressing the entire human race at this point, (laughs) not you as an individual at this moment. But for those who are single, who are searching, don't dismiss people that he brings into your life that, that you don't think would meet your needs when they can help you live your best for God's glory. Obeying him, loving him. Don't look at the outside and see as only man sees. Look as, and see as God sees, at the inner person. We can't see truly as God sees, but we're, we do our best with that. We pray for his will and for his wisdom. So, so here we have Adam, and, and, and he's looking, he's, he's noticed, there's no compliment, there's no helper fit. The problem for Adam, though, at this point is he can't just go look for his compliment anywhere. 
Nobody else exists at this point. He can't make his own. So it's time for God to do his work. In verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. In other words, God knocks him out, right? (laughs) And as Adam sleeps, God takes a rib out. Now, the original word is side, not specifically, explicitly rib. It could have been rib. It could have been rib with some flesh. Whatever it was, we're not going to speculate too much. But please... Please do not teach children. Please do not teach other people that man now has one less rib than females, than women do. I remember I heard that in Sunday school uh, growing up at church. And everyone in the, all of us students, we were kids. I mean, we're, we're, we're touching our ribs and we're like, we don't feel it. Wait, you know, it seems like we've got the same. And he just got so mad at us. Be quiet. Just, just listen. <laughs> It's not true. Like, I mean, even if, you're, if, if your grandfather sprained his ankle, you will not be born with a sprained ankle, right? <laughs> okay. God took the rib and made the woman. Um, that's all we're going to say about it because that's what God says about it. We're not going to speculate about what else, was, what else happened or what else it could have been. God took that part of Adam out of his side. He closed up the place in Adam. And then the word here for made is actually the word built. God built the woman. Built means fashioning a structure of some importance. It, it, it's, an, it's a constructive effort. It implies stability, durability, and beauty. That, that's the implication of this word. It, it took a lot of careful attention by God to build this woman. And I've shared this with some of you, but this is why I call my wife a beautiful tank. <laughs> She's a tank. I mean, she's so durable and she's strong in ways that I'm not strong. And she just keeps going. And she, I'm glad she's not here in here with us this morning. She's teaching children. <laughs> Man, I don't advise you to use that for your wife. Not every wife will take that as a compliment. But I call her a beautiful tank because she's so strong and powerful and yet so beautiful. God built this woman like this. And, and so after God has built this woman, he wakes Adam up and brings her to him. And Adam sees for the first time his compliment, the one who completes him, who's comparable, who's fit for him. And she's so much like him, and yet she's so different. And after seeing all the animals and being disappointed, he exclaims, this at last. Here she is. This one is different. In fact, in the original, he says this one three times. It, it was clumsy English, so it's, it's smoothed out for us in our translations. But he says, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because from man was taken this one. <laughs> he's impressed. He's pleased. He's so, he's so grateful. She has the same bones, the same flesh. Nothing else has that. Adam goes on to say, she shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of Ish. Ish is man, Isha is woman. They mean different things, but the words sound familiar, and it highlights the profound differences and similarities between a man and a woman. We wouldn't know in English, but to this point, Adam has only been called Adam. From the ground, Adama, that's been the focus. Now he is Ish, man, because there is Isha, woman. But even as he names her, God teaches Adam, now you have a responsibility for her. You've named, I've brought her to you, you've named her, now you have a responsibility. Not like you did with the animals, because she's different from everything else in this creation. She is like you, she is of you, she's equal with you. In your equality with her, now you have a responsibility to care for her. 
Now, there are other lessons for Adam here. We'll stick with three again, and we'll go through these again briefly. Lesson one, God provides fulfillment and completion. God's the one who provides the fulfillment and the completion of everything and anything that's lacking. He's the source of fulfillment. In creation, he did not stop until it was complete. It was not good for man to be alone. When man and woman were together, then creation could be called very good. He's the source of completion in our salvation. He will see it through to the end. He is always and ultimately our source of completion and fulfillment, yet he works through means. And part of the means that he uses is the beautiful relationship between a husband and a wife. So God is the one who provides all fulfillment, who provides all completion. And and this picture of marriage does not replace him, but it pictures God in marriage. It pictures his goodness and his wife as a, and his wisdom as a husband and wife care for one another as they work together to bear God's image. Lesson two for Adam, God provides his way for his glory. He provides his way for his glory. As we see this unfold, you note that neither Eve nor Adam were consulted on what the other should be like, right? God put man to sleep. When God started this, man didn't even know he was incomplete, but God taught him, and then he provided. And, and you know, we might have a different understanding if God said, hey, Adam, what do you think we should make her like, <laughs> right? Adam, what, what would you like to see? In a, what would you like to have? You know, it's up to you. No, it wasn't up to Adam. God, in his own perfect good wisdom, provided exactly what Adam needed and provided exactly what Eve needed as he made them and brought them together so that together the two of them would bear his image in creation and have dominion as they were fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth. So God provided his way for his glory. Lesson three, God provides a completed whole in this marriage. He provided a completed whole in this marriage. Again, they shared the same flesh. They were equal in dignity and worth and essence, but only together was it possible to bring this all to completion. This is absolutely unique in all of the creation stories that are around the world. Israel's nearby neighbors didn't even have a, a, a creation story for how there came to be females, how there came to be women. Other myths about creation around the world place the woman as being created in a lower position, a lower status. And they say she's the troublemaker, she was the problem, she's what ruined everything. And that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says the two of them were made equal to work together to bring about God's will. Their tasks were not equal. If the, same, if the two had the same job to do, God wouldn't have needed both of them, right? So he gave them different things to do. God has charged the man with being responsible for creation. He's charged the woman to help in that work. That was clear when Eve came after Adam, and Adam named Eve when she came from his side. The side is what you would protect, right? The side is where you, where you protect and where you shield and care for. And she did not, as Matthew Henry pointed out, he did, she did not come out of his head so that she would rule over him. She didn't come out of his feet so that he would rule over her. There's no superiority. There's equality and responsibility. So the two were separate. They were distinct. They were intentionally made equal yet different. It was a separation that God intended. He designed, he executed, and it was not up for debate or questioning. And it was not up for wondering, which, which one am I, Eve? I forgot, <laughs> right? Eve says, well, I don't know. I forgot which one I am. No, th- there was no wondering. This is what God did. So in these closing verses, we have even more lessons for us on top of what Adam learned. 
um, verses 24 and 25 were not for Adam and Eve. This is what happened to them already. These are for our benefit. But Adam's statement is a, is a statement of commitment, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's mine and I'm hers. We're together. They were physically one flesh. How does that happen? How does that happen for us now? Verse 24 says, from now on, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So there are two parts, the leaving and the cleaving, right? Leaving is the word abandoning. It's forsaking. It's I'm out. It's splitting, okay? Um, he, he, he leaves his parents. It doesn't sever any responsibility to care for them. It doesn't sever the relationship. It just changes it profoundly because what replaces it is a new relationship where he holds fast, a clinging together. We've used the illustration before. It's like gluing pieces of wood together. The, the glued joint becomes stronger than the wood itself. The, nothing will separate the two of them. It's the truth of what happens. It becomes the basis for our marriage vows, right? Forsaking all others. If you're going to forsake parents, the closest relationship earthly that you have, then you would forsake any other relationship. Well, the final words of chapter 2 are the final words of purity and fulfillment and peace in the garden. In all of God's creation, there are two people. They are naked together, but they're not ashamed. It all obviously refers to physical nudity, but as you, have, as, you have, as you know, if you've ever been in that situation, there is so much more than just not having clothes on. For these two, there's no shame. There's no fear. There's no hiding. There's no anxiety. There's no exploitation. There is purity. There's innocence, and it's open together. And they enjoy the garden. They enjoy one another. They enjoy God's presence. They enjoy the work that they've been given. They enjoy without guilt, without shame, no sickness or death. They have all they've ever needed. Their desires are fulfilled. They work together. They serve God. So again, we ask, what happened? How come it's not like that anymore? This is the last section in the scripture. This is the last time we get to see the world without sin in it. It's the last time we get to see it, but it's the same God. We need to notice this God. We need to recognize this God as he, as he speaks to us, as he reveals himself through his scriptures to us and see that this is the same God who has goodness and blessing and life in himself that he offers to us. He will not change as we look at the next section, but everything else will. Our application, what we take from here is we, that we need to see that God's blessings are found in his commandments and his provisions. In God's commandments and provisions, in all that God has said, in every way that he's provided, there is goodness and life and blessing and fulfillment and, and just a super abundance of all that is good. That's what there is with God. And as we seek to try to obey him, we will fail and we will stumble and we will fail and we'll mess up and we'll miss the mark and we'll transgress and we'll go over the mark and we'll do everything wrong. And that's why he sent Jesus. Father, we praise you for Jesus. God, we thank you for our Savior. Lord, he is the one who came in the perfect image of you. God, in the perfect man, he came to this earth and lived righteously. He did what we can't do. He did what we could never do to live perfectly, to obey all of your commandments. Father, we praise you for Jesus. We thank you for him, God. We thank you that as, after he lived that perfect life, as he went to the cross, God, he suffered the wrath, the crushing wrath that you have against us because of our sin. And it's a good, holy, deserving wrath against us. But God, Jesus took that from us. 
And he gave us his perfect righteousness. When we will turn away from that sin and believe in him, God, he provided that for us. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your wisdom. God, you are holy. You cannot even bear to look upon sin, to to accept sin. So God, you do not accept sin, but you accepted your son in our place. You accepted his perfect sacrifice. Father, I pray that we would live in that reality, in that truth. And, and God, as we live as new creatures, new creations in Christ, God, I pray that we would seek to obey you more and more every day to live holiness for you, for your glory, that you would empower us and enable us that way, Father. We thank you for husbands and wives. We thank you for marriage. We thank you for children. God, we thank you even for those who are single, God, that that you are working in them to be what fulfills and completes them. God, we pray that you would continue to work in each of us. Whatever station we're in, God, I pray that our lives would glorify you. And Lord, that we would bring others along, that we would be those who make disciples and that we'd be equipped for every form of ministry you've given us. We praise you for Jesus and we thank you in his name. Amen.